Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my lovelies, to your next Dracula episode. And mates, we learn more about Jonathan Harker's journal, We Meet Dracula, and watch a relationship between the two fester to life. I will link part one of Dracula to this episode in the show notes, just in case you missed it or want to revisit that episode. Now, my demons of the night, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and don't let anything bite. The strange driver evidently heard the words, for he looked up with a gleaming smile. The passenger turned his face away, at the same time putting out his two fingers and crossing himself. Give me the air's luggage said the driver, and with exceeding alacrity my bags were handed out and put in the caletch. Then I descended from the side of the coach as the caletch was close alongside. The driver, helping me with a hand which caught my arm in a grip of steel, his strength must have been prodigious. Without a word he shook his reins, the horses turned, and we swept into the darkness of the pass. As I looked back I saw the steam from the horses of the carriage by the lights of the lamps and projected against it the figures of my late companions crossing themselves. Then the driver cracked his whip and called to his horses, and off they swept on their way to Bukovina. As they sank into the darkness, I felt a strange chill, and a lonely feeling came over me. But a cloak was thrown over my shoulders, and a rug across my knees, and the driver said in excellent German, The night is chill, mine heir and my master, the Count, bade me take all care of you. There is a flask of Slivovitz, the plum brandy of the country, underneath the seat, if you should require it. I did not take any, but it was a comfort to know it was there all the same. I felt a little strangely, and not a little frightened. I think had there been any alternative I should have taken it, instead of prosecuting that unknown night journey. The carriage went at a hard pace straight along, then we made a complete turn and went along another straight road. It seemed to me that we were simply going over and over the same ground again, and so I took note of some salient point and found that this was so. I would have liked to have asked the driver what this all meant, but I really feared to do so. For I thought that, placed as I was, any protest would have no effect in case there had been an intention to delay. By and by, however, as I was curious to know how time was passing, I struck a match and by its flame looked at my watch. It was within a few minutes of midnight. This gave me a sort of shock, for I suppose the general superstition about midnight was increased by my recent experiences. I waited with a sick feeling of suspense. Then a dog began to howl somewhere in a farmhouse far down the road, a long, agonized wailing, as if from fear. The sound was taken up by another dog, and then another, and another, till, borne on the wind, which now sighed softly through the pass, a wild howling began, which seemed to come from all over the country. As far as the imagination could grasp it, through the gloom of the night, at the first howl the horses began to strain and rear, but the driver spoke to them soothingly, and they quieted down. 
but shivered and sweated as though after a runaway from sudden fright. Then, far off in the distance, from the mountains on each side of us, began a louder and sharper howling, that of wolves, which affected both the horses and myself in the same way. For I was minded to jump from the caleche and run, whilst they reared again and plunged madly, so that the driver had to use all his great strength to keep them from bolting. In a few minutes, however, my own ears got accustomed to the sound, and the horses so far became quiet that the driver was able to descend and to stand before them. He petted and soothed them, and whispered something in their ears, as I have heard of horse tamers doing, and with extraordinary effect. For under his caresses they became quite manageable again, though they still trembled. The driver again took his seat, and shaking his reins, started off at a great pace. This time, after going to the far side of the pass, he suddenly turned down a narrow roadway, which ran sharply to the right. Soon we hemmed in with trees, which in places arched right over the roadway, till we passed as through a tunnel, and again, great frowning rocks guarded us boldly on either side. Though we were in shelter, we could hear the rising wind, for it moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees crashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still and fine powdery snow began to form, so that soon we, and all around us, were covered with a white blanket. The keen wind still carried the howling of the dogs, though this grew fainter as we went on our way. The baying of the wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though they were closing around us from every side. I grew dreadfully afraid, and the horses shared my fear. The driver, however, was not in the least disturbed. He kept turning his head to left and right, but I could not see anything through the darkness. Suddenly, away on our left, I saw a faint flickering blue flame. The driver saw it at the same moment. He at once checked the horses and, jumping to the ground, disappeared into the darkness. I did not know what to do, the less as the howling of the wolves grew closer. But while I wondered, the driver suddenly appeared again, and without a word took his seat, and we resumed our journey. I think I must have fallen asleep and kept dreaming of the incident, for it seemed to be repeated endlessly. And now, looking back, it is like a sort of awful nightmare. Once the flame appeared so near the road, that even in the darkness around us I could watch the driver's motions, he went rapidly to where the blue flame arose. It must have been very faint, for it did not seem to illuminate the place around it at all. And gathering a few stones, formed them into some device. Once, there appeared a strange optical effect. When he stood between me and the flame, he did not obstruct it, for I could see its ghostly flicker all the same. This startled me, but as the effect was only momentary, I took it that my eyes deceived me straining through the darkness. Then, for a time, there were no blue flames, and we sped onwards, through the gloom, with the howling of the wolves around us, as though they were following in a moving circle. At last there came a time when the driver went further afield than he had yet gone, and during his absence, the horses began to tremble worse than ever, and to snort and scream with fright. I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether. But just then, the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling pine-clad rock, 
and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them than even when they howled. For myself, I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. It is only when a man feels himself face to face with such horrors that he can understand their true import. All at once, the wolves began to howl, as though the moonlight had some peculiar effect on them. The horses jumped about and reared, and looked helplessly around with eyes that rolled in a way painful to see, but the living ring of terror encompassed them on every side, and they had a perforce to remain within it. I called to the coachman to come, for it seemed to me that our only chance was to try and break out through the ring and to aid his approach. I shouted and beat the side of the caleche, hoping by the noise to scare the wolves from that side, so as to give him a chance of reaching the trap. How he came there, I know not, but I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command, and looking towards the sound, saw him stand in the roadway, as he swept his long arms, as though brushing aside some impalpable obstacle. The wolves fell back and back further still. Just then a heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon, so that we were again in darkness. When I could see again the driver was climbing into the caleche, and the wolves had disappeared. This was all so strange and uncanny that a dreadful fear came upon me, and I was afraid to speak or move. The time seemed interminable and we swept on our way, now in almost complete darkness, for the rolling clouds obscured the moon. We kept on ascending with occasional periods of quick descent, but in the main always ascending. Suddenly I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. Chapter 2 Jonathan Harker's journal continued. 5th of May I must have been asleep, for certainly if I had been fully awake I must have noticed the approach of such a remarkable place. In the gloom, the courtyard looked of considerable size, and as several dark ways led from it under great round arches, it perhaps seemed bigger than it really is. I have not yet been able to see it by daylight. When the caleche stopped, the driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me to alight. Again, I could not but notice his prodigious strength. His hand actually seemed like a steel vice that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. Then he took out my traps and placed them on the ground beside me as I stood close to a great door. Old and studded with large iron nails and set in a projecting doorway of massive stone. I could see even in the dim light that the stone was massively carved but that the carving had been much worn by time and weather. As I stood, the driver jumped again into his seat and shook the reins. The horses started forward, and trap and all disappeared down one of the dark openings. I stood in silence where I was, for I did not know what to do. Of bell or knocker there was no sign, through these frowning walls and dark window openings, and it was not likely that my voice could penetrate. The time I waited seemed endless, 
and I felt doubts and fears crowding upon me. What sort of place had I come to, and among what kind of people? What sort of grim adventure was it on which I had embarked? Was this a customary incident in the life of a solicitor's clerk sent out to explain the purchase of a London estate to a foreigner? Solicitor's clerk? Mina would not like that. Solicitor, for just before leaving London, I got word that my examination was successful, and I am now a full-blown solicitor. I began to rub my eyes and pinch myself to see if I were awake. It all seemed like a horrible nightmare to me, and I expected that I should suddenly awake and find myself at home with the dawn struggling in through the windows, as I had now and again felt in the morning after a day of overwork. But my flesh answered the pinching test, and my eyes were not to be deceived. I was indeed awake and among the Carpathians. All I could do now was to be patient and to wait the coming of the morning. Just as I had come to this conclusion, I heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door and saw through the chinks the gleam of a coming light. Then there was the sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with the loud grating noise of long disuse and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache and clad in black from head to foot without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp in which the flame burned without chimney or globe of any kind, throwing long quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely, and on your own will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward and holding out his hand, grasped mine, with a strength which made me wince, an effect that wasn't lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Again, he said, Welcome to my house, come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. The strength of the handshake was so much akin to that which I had noticed in the driver whose face I had not seen that for a moment I doubted if it were not the same person to whom I was speaking. So to make sure, I said interrogatively, Count Dracula. He bowed in a curtly way as he replied, I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. As he was speaking, he put the lamp on a bracket on the wall, and stepping out, took my luggage. He had carried it in before I could forestall him. I protested, but he insisted. Nay, sir, you are my guest. It is late, and my people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. He insisted on carrying my traps along the passage, and then up a great winding stair and along another great passage on whose stone floor our steps rang heavily. At the end of this he threw open a heavy door, 
and I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room, in which a table was spread for supper, and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs, freshly replenished, flamed and flared. The Count halted, putting down my bags, closed the door, and crossing the room opened another door, which led into a small octagonal room lit by a single lamp, and seemingly without a window of any sort. Passing through this, he opened another door and motioned me to enter. It was a welcome sight, for here was a great bedroom well lighted and warmed with another log fire. Also added to but lately, for the top logs were fresh, which sent a hollow roar up the wide chimney. The Count himself left my luggage inside and withdrew, saying before he closed the door, You will need after your journey to refresh yourself by making your toilet. I trust you will find all you wish. When you are ready, come into the other room, where you will find your supper prepared. The light and warmth and the Count's courteous welcome seemed to have dissipated all my doubts and fears. Having then reached my normal state, I discovered that I was half famished with hunger. So making a hasty toilet, I went into the other room. I found my supper already laid out, my host who stood on one side of the great fireplace, leaning against the stonework, made a graceful wave of his hand to the table and said, I pray you be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust, excuse me that I do not join you, but I have dined already and I do not sup. I handed him the sealed letter which Mr. Hawkins had entrusted to me. He opened it and read it gravely. Then, with a charming smile, he handed it to me to read. One passage of it, at least, gave me a thrill of pleasure. I must regret that an attack of gout, from which malady I am constant sufferer, forbids absolutely any travelling on my part for some time to come. But I am happy to say I can send a sufficient substitute, one in whom I have every possible confidence. He is a young man, full of energy and talent in his own way and of a very faithful disposition. He is discreet and silent, and has grown into manhood in my service. He shall be ready to attend on you when you will, during his stay, and shall take your instructions in all matters. The Count himself came forward and took off the cover of a dish, and I fell to at once, on an excellent roast chicken. This with some cheese and a salad and a bottle of old Touquet, of which I had two glasses, was my supper. During the time I was eating it, the Count asked me many questions as to my journey, and I told him by degrees all I had experienced. By this time I had finished my supper, and my host's desire had drawn up a chair by the fire, and begun to smoke a cigar which he offered to me, and at the same time excusing himself that he did not smoke. I had now an opportunity of observing him, and found him of a very marked physiognomy. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiar arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead, and hair growing scantily around the temples but profusely everywhere else. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in on its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it, under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. 
For the rest, his ears were pale, and at the tops extremely pointed. The chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm, though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. Hitherto I had noticed the backs of his hands as they lay on his knees in the firelight, and they had seemed rather white and fine. But seeing them now close to me, I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, broad with squat fingers. Strange to say, there were hairs in the center of the palm. The nails were long and fine, and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. It may have been that his breath was rank, but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count, evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile, which showed more than he had yet done his protuberant teeth, set himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened I heard, as if from down below in the valley, the howling of many wolves. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Then he rose and said, But you must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready, and tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. With a courteous bow, he opened for himself the door to the octagonal room, and I entered my bedroom. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. 7th of May It is again early morning, but I have rested and enjoyed the last 24 hours. I slept till late in the day and awoke of my own accord. When I had dressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped, and found a cold breakfast laid out, with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. There was a card on the table, on which was written, I have to be absent for a while. Do not wait for me. With the initial D upon it. I set to and enjoyed a hearty meal. When I had done, I looked for a bell, so that I might let the servants know I had finished. But I could not find one. There are certainly odd deficiencies in this house, considering the extraordinary evidences of wealth which are around me. The table surface is of gold and so beautifully wrought that it must be of immense value. The curtains and upholstery of the chairs and sofas and the hangings of my bed are of the costliest and most beautiful fabrics and must have been of fabulous value when they were made. For they are centuries old, though in excellent order. I saw something like them in Hampton Court, but there they were worn and frayed and moth-eaten, but still in none of the rooms is there a mirror. There is not even a toilet glass on my table, and I had to get the little shaving glass from my bag before I could either shave or brush my hair. I have not yet seen a servant anywhere 
or heard a sound near the castle except the howling of wolves. Sometime after I'd finished my meal, I did not know whether to call it breakfast or dinner, for it was between 5 and 6 o'clock when I had it, I looked about for something to read, for I did not like to go out about the castle until I had asked the Count's permission. There was absolutely nothing in the room, book, newspaper, or even writing materials. So I opened another door in the room and found a sort of library. The door opposite mine I tried, but found it locked. In the library I found, to my great delight, a vast number of English books, whole shelves full of them, and bound volumes of magazines and newspapers. A table in the centre was littered with English magazines and newspapers, though none of them were of very recent date. The books were of the most varied kind, history, geography, politics, political economy, botany, geology, law, all relating to England and English life and customs and manners. There were even such books of reference as the London Directory, the Red and Blue Books, Whittaker's Almanac, the Army and Navy Lists, and it somehow gladdened my heart to see it, the Law List. Whilst I was looking at the books, the door opened and the Count entered. He saluted me in a hearty way, and hoped that I had had a good night's rest. Then he went on. I am glad you found your way in here, for I am sure there is much that will interest you, these companions, and he laid his hand on some of the books, have been good friends to me, and for some years past, ever since I had the idea of going to London, have given me many, many hours of pleasure. Through them I have come to know your great England, and to know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of your mighty London, to be in the midst of the whirl and rush of humanity, to share its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is. But alas, as yet I only know your tongue through books. To you, my friend, I look that I know it to speak. But can't I... I said, You know and speak English thoroughly. He bowed gravely. I thank you, my friend, for your all too flattering estimate, but yet I fear that I am but a little way on the road I would travel. Though I know the grammar and the words, but yet I know not how to speak them. Indeed, I said, You speak excellently. Not so, he answered. Well, I know that would I move and speak in your London, none there are who would not know me for a stranger. That is not enough for me. Here I am noble. I am Boyar. The common people know me, but I am master. But a stranger in a strange land. He is no one. Men know him not. And to know not is to care not for. I am content if I am like the rest, so that no man stops if he sees me, or pause in his speaking if he hears my words. <laughs> a stranger, I have been so long a master, I'd be a master still. Or at least that tell me all about my new estate in London. You shall, I trust, rest here with me a while, so that by our talking I may learn the English intonation. I would that you tell me when I make error or even the smallest in my speaking. I am sorry that I had to be away so long today, 
But you will, I know, forgive one who has so many important affairs in hand. Of course I said all I could about being willing, and asked if I might come into that room when I choose. He answered, Yes, certainly, and added, You may go anywhere you wish in the castle, except where the doors are locked, where of course you will not wish to go. There is reason that all things are as they are, and did you see with my eyes and know with my knowledge, you would perhaps better understand. I said I was sure of this, and then he went on. We are in Transylvania, and Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways, and there shall be to you many strange things. Nay, from what you have told me of your experiences already, you know something of what strange things there may be. This led to much conversation, and as it was evident that he wanted to talk, if only for talking's sake, I asked him many questions regarding things that had already happened to me or come within my notice. Sometimes he sheared off the subject, or turned the conversation by pretending not to understand, but generally he answered almost all I asked, and frankly. Then as time went on and I got somewhat bolder, I asked him of some of the strange things of the preceding night, as for instance, why the coachman went to the places where he had seen the blue flames. He then explained to me that it was commonly believed that on a certain night of the year, last night in fact, when all evil spirits are supposed to have unchecked sway, a blue flame is seen over any place where treasure has been concealed. That treasure has been hidden. He went on. In the region through which you came last night, there can be but little doubt, for it was the ground fought over for centuries by the Wallachian, the Saxon, and the Turk. Why, there is hardly a foot of soil in all this region that has not been enriched by the blood of men, patriots, or invaders. In old days there were stirring times, when the Austrian and the Hungarian came up in hordes, and the patriots went out to meet them, men and women, the aged and the children too, and waited their coming on the rocks above the passes, that they might sweep destruction on them with their artificial avalanches. When the invaders were triumphant he found but little for whatever there was, had been sheltered in the friendly soil. But how, said I, can it have remained so long undiscovered, when there is a sure index to it, if men will but take the trouble to look? The Count smiled, and as his lips ran back over his gums, the long, sharp canine teeth showed out strangely. He answered, Because your peasant is at heart a coward and a fool. Those flames only appear on one night, and on that night no man on this land will, if he can help it, stir without his doors. And, dear sir, even if he did, he would not know what to do. Why, even the peasant that you tell me of, who marked the place of the flame, who would not know where to look in daylight, even for his own work, even you would not, I dare be sworn, be able to find these places again? There you are right, I said. I know no more than the dead were even to look for them. Then we drifted into other matters. Come, he said at last. Tell me of London and of the house which you have procured for me. With an apology for my remissness, I went into my own room to get the papers from my bag. 
Whilst I was placing them in order, I heard a rattling of china and silver in the next room, and as I passed through, noticed that the table had been cleared and the lamp lit, for it was by this time deep into the dark. The lamps were also lit in the study or library, and I found the Count lying on the sofa, reading of all things in the world and English Bradshaw's guide. When I came in, he cleared the books and papers from the table, and with him I went into plans and deeds and figures of all sorts. He was interested in everything, and asked me a myriad of questions about the place and its surroundings. He clearly had studied beforehand all he could get of the subject on the neighborhood, for he evidently at the end knew very much more than I did. When I remarked this, he answered, Well, but my friend, it is not needful that I should. When I go there I shall be alone, and my friend Harker Jonathan, nay, pardon me, I fall into my country's habit of putting your patronomic first. My friend Jonathan Harker will not be by my side to correct and aid me. He will be in Exeter, miles away, probably working at papers of the law with my other friend, Peter Hawkins. So? And we went thoroughly into the business of the purchase of the estate at Perfleet. When I told him the facts and got his signature to the necessary papers, and had written a letter with them, ready to post to Mr. Hawkins. He began to ask me how I had come across so suitable a place. I read to him the notes which I had made at the time, and which I inscribe here. At Perfleet on a by-road, I came across just such a place as seemed to be required, and where was displayed a dilapidated notice that the place was for sale. It is surrounded by a high wall of ancient structure, built of heavy stones, and has not been repaired for a large number of years. The closed gates are of heavy old oak and iron, all eaten with rust. And this, my lovely listeners, is where I'll stop for now. Well, listeners, we get one step closer to knowing more about Dracula, who he is, his motives, and what his true intentions are in bringing Jonathan Harker under his wing. The lack of servants, the eerie castle haunted by wolves, creates a sense of dread and foreboding atmosphere, a feeling of uneasiness that something isn't right. The more I read of this story, the more obvious it is that the horror lies in plain sight, and that as Jonathan Harker himself sits there, explains and vicariously teaches Dracula English, is bizarrely right there in front of him, and his own demise awaits. And it is his own mind that has kept him in the shadows, ignorant yet seeing. The strangeness of the situation he is in is expounded by the fact that he is unable to realize this risk. Even his description of Dracula is fascinating, hair on his hands, his teeth, his eyebrows, having me wanting to ask that question, dear man, why the hell are you there? Can he not see he is far from human? But remember, in those times folks, Information was not a button-click away or an article link around the corner. Information was hard to discover, and what he does have on Dracula regarding information is mysterious and unfounded, as of yet. So to us readers, we are in a unique position of knowing the creature he deals with and the unfathomable level of unknowing exhibited by Jonathan Harker, cemented by his initial meeting with Dracula. I also believe there is some level of mesmerism taking place here that Dracula uses to keep his victims where they are, with him and talking. This is not his first rodeo and is centuries old, so I think there's dark magic here involved. So, what do you think of the story so far? I hope you're really enjoying it. 
Now, my brilliant listeners, it is time to thank the legends that support this podcast, my Patreon supporters. Before I start, if you want to support this podcast and be one of the legends, swing on over to www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. That's where you can help this podcast by supporting the production of this show directly. First up are my awesome Ode Night Tea Titans. I've gone for a mix of tales today, folks. A bit of magic, wild cryptids, and wildlife preservation themes. I hope you love them. Matthew J. Bauer, Carpathian Bird Whisperer. In the mountains of the Transylvanian Alps, there are creatures of the night that wander and feast on those unlucky enough to fall into the traps of wandering alone in these mountainsides. Many children, men, and young women travel there to seek the beauty that the Alps hold. But little do they know the dangers that reside there. One such danger was the bold ashen wolf that wandered those highlands, whose talent for hiding in the forests were second to none, due to the colour and ashen pattern of its fur. After many went missing, that is when they enlisted the Carpathian Bird Whisperer to locate and lead a hunting party to trap this hound for good. The connection that this Bird Whisperer has with his flock amazed the search party. Using nothing but the Ash Wolf's fur, he used his birds to track and identify where the Ash Wolf lair resided, deep into the mountainside. His birds located, hovered and called to the Whisperer, in which he trapped but not killed the animal. Such was the contractual agreement that would ensure the Carpathian Bird Whisperer's services were used. A unique man whose talents are only used to preserve the wild and its harmony. Maya, Queen of Crows. Amidst the Transylvanian mountains, there are wolves, snakes, bats, and creatures of the night, whose features are more that of monsters and demons that would dwell beneath the earth than that of the land above. In those mountains, though, there is a sage by the name Queen of Crows. She is wise beyond measure, with centuries of wisdom locked away in her mind, and frequently consults with Dracula himself as a result of that knowledge. The crows of Transylvania are the eyes that she uses to warn him of invaders, attackers, or would-be snoopers of his kingdom, and her knowledge of tinctures, protection spells, and illusions are perfected to mythical proportions. As a result of her skills, Queen of Crows is completely unknown to the world other than her connection to Dracula, in his journals and his books, and what he knows of her. It is her power and not Dracula's that keeps the kingdom of darkness invisible to the world, and it is her power to elude all capture, and to have all knowledge of going-ons around her Carpathian lands, that keeps them both safe. Pray you never meet her, for if you must, the requirement of her services would bear with it a request equally as desperate. Solstra, Ayur Wolfess The deep Carpathian highlands are subjected rarely to interrogation of the common folk in the surrounding area. There are mountain landscapes viewed from up high, but never travelled, pathways that lead to ending roads where none dare walk or explore, and in those recesses and those duckaway roads lives the Aeor Wolfess from the forest in Carpathia. The Aeor Wolfess is a shapeshifter, more wolf than woman, whose mane and hair is of pure gold, glistening in the sunlight, often mistaken for a creature of pure magic, a siren or woodland nymph. She is neither of these, and is a creature that lives a dual nature. For at night her body changes, shedding her human form, and from within a sunlight golden mane flourishes from her sides, and into the body of a glistening gold wolf. 
Her fangs glow a crimson red, and her eyes are pearlescent gold. That serves both as a warning and show of magnificence of a creature such as this. Observe and never confront her. For those that have, tell of tales of being unable to scream, barely being able to think, and feeling only dread as the creature walks past them. Heed those warnings and leave the creature be, or it may be the last decision you take within the wilderness of Carpathia. I hope you enjoyed your tales, you brilliant and amazing supporters. Your support day in and day out is just epic. So much so that I've been using a different set of music today, which I think really brings this story to life. And I can't wait to sink my teeth into even more music next week, thanks to your support. Now, my fantastic white tea warlords, I own cows, Night Tracker. The night in the Carpathian Highlands are what the populace feared most in those days. The fear of the undead, the fear of Dracula, his minions and the wolves that would hunt the hunters for sport. But Night Tracker is no average Carpathian pathfinder, but a specialist in the field of trapping and securing creatures of the night to bring back for research. Working closely with Lee Bower, the sole demonologist in that land, he has retrieved multiple wolves that showed legions and strange bone-like structures on their knees, their bodies used for dark research. Using a ring passed down within his family, generation after generation, the Night Tracker uses the moonlight, reflecting its rays within his ring, into the earth and showing him misty blue pockets of dust, the tracks left by creatures of the night. The Night Tracker is not a one-trick specialist and brings with him knowledge of the land, utilizing tree bark as protective materials and moss from Carpathian highlands to create potions to mask his scent and much, much more. Rest assured, the Night Tracker learns every step of the way when hunting his prey. Lee Bauer, Soul Demonologist A demonologist in a town where demons and anything to do with them are sacrilegious. To study a demon is to become one, the townsfolk would say. But Lee is no fool, and recognizes that in not knowing the enemy, one can never best his enemy, let alone remain in the dark where Dracula favors that position most. Working closely with the Night Tracker, the demonologist has been able to extract blood, physical biological material, and test the oils and coatings that he designs on live specimens. It is a dangerous practice for sure, but one that only he has been trained to do or has passion to continue doing. The town does not realize how close they are to being consumed by the darkness that waits outside their doorstep, and they will never realize. It is in this knowledge of demons, the understanding of the dark, that will be the very defense they need against these creatures. And he will be the only light that saves this populace from being consumed by an impending and closely gaining darkness. Mates, I wanted to maintain that hunter motif for the two of you, and this time, I wanted to see both of you working together. I hope you enjoyed both these tales, mate, and thank you so much for your support to this podcast. Both of you are brilliant. And of course, my old grain forces. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank all of you for your support, mates, and have a kick-ass weekend, and a brilliant and much-deserved rest. I'll see you Monday for some awesome old-time radio drama, and Dracula Part 3 will be coming to your ears on Wednesday. Thank you so much, mates, and as always, till next we meet.